Father, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because of your love and your faithfulness. And you thought it was a good idea before the foundation of the world that we would be here today, so we are. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we thank you for you are a good, good father. And now as we turn to your word, I pray, Lord, you would be our anchor. And Lord, that we would not walk through life anchorless, but that we would walk through life with a sure and solid anchor. Convict us, would your word come aloud? And would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you because you are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. As a newly married young man, I had an opportunity about 10 years ago to appeal, or let's just call it do some relationship bonding with my father-in-law. He was more uh, outdoorsman, me more on the athletic side. He desired hunting and walks and fishing. I desired a ball and some sweat and some friends and some Gatorade and usually some air conditioning. Amen. And so I, as a southerner in rural South Carolina, felt in order to appeal to him, I was going to do something he liked to do. So he said, let's go fishing. I said, let's go fishing. So I'm not a fisherman, but he wakes me up early in the morning. It's 530 in the morning. And we go out and we get in his boat and we proceed to fish. Now, I brought a book. I I did not know exactly what would happen on this fishing trip. But as I brought my book and set out, the first thing I realized is that at 630 in the morning that the sun was going to come up over us at some point, and not over top like noonday sun, but at some point the sun was going to come over the top of us, and I had a bad matchup, amen, on the top of my head, okay? So without sunscreen or without any kind of hat or anything else, I realized that my peninsula up here had turned into an island, amen? So I realized that I had not come prepared for sunscreen on the top of my head, and my head began to burn, and I knew in my mind, I'm going to pay for this trip. (laughs) Then he said to me about a couple of minutes into the trip, hey, let's put some bait on the hook. I said, okay, let's put some bait on the hook. Had no, no idea what that meant. He pulls to me some worms and gives me the hook, and I took the hook, and I put it right through my thumb. My hand began to bleed, and as a man, a macho man, I didn't want to admit that I had messed this up. So I put my hand in my pocket, (laughs) only to realize five seconds later that I had on white shorts. So my pants began to have a red blood spot right here, and of course, my father-in-law asked me, are you okay? And just like men do, of course I'm okay, right? And this pool of blood begins to pull up right over my left thumb. I pull out my thumb and admit to him that I'm now bleeding. And he pulls out his sure handy kit, gives me a band-aid, and we begin to fix it. He says to me, hey, let's cast our first rod. Let's cast our first line. Let's see what we can get. First time casting a rod, I threw the whole entire rod into the water. I leaned over and I grabbed it out real quick so he barely saw it, but I knew in the back of my mind he heard a big splash and it wasn't a fish, amen? So I reached down and grabbed this 
line that he had paid for and that was nice and eloquent. And I began to play it off like I was fishing and the line was dripping wet and the reel was soaking wet. I said to myself, man, this is not going well. I turned around and there was a big boat and we were in a small little fishing boat and there was a big boat that went by and evidently we were too close and this other guy was telling us we were number one, amen? And so he, he <laughs> came by real close and here comes this wave and the wave knocks my book out of the boat. So I've got the rod in one hand and I'm trying to get this, this, this book out of the water. This book was light and hundred pages or so and I'm leaning and I'm doing this movement where the rod is now in the air and the boat begins to shake. So I begin, he looks back at me and he says, what are you doing? And I said, fishing. How are you doing? And I had to let the book drift off because I knew if I kept searching after that book, it was going to be a problem. So with a wet rod and a bloody pair of shorts, And my line in the water, he looks at me and he says, I think I want to anchor down right here. And he said, will you do me a favor and throw the anchor in? And I thought to myself, now this is something that I can do right here. I mean, I don't know about worms. I don't know about casting, but I sure can throw an anchor in water. I mean, it's a lake. It's hard to miss. Amen. So I take the anchor. And I throw it as far as I can out, not realizing that the anchor was not tied yet to the boat. I mean, it was a good throw, though. Let me just tell you, this thing had air and projectile. I mean, it was a javelin-like toss that Olympians would have been proud of, to which he says, you're going to need to go get that. Amen. I go get the anchor. I come back. We tie it to the boat. And as we go up under some beautiful trees in an area that he knew would have fish, we we threw out the anchor. And after messing up the first 25 minutes or so of our fishing trip, I looked at him and said, okay, let me make sure I get this right. And I asked him, I said, okay, can you give me any instructions that I need here? The anchor is tied to the boat. We're good to go. I threw out, and right before I threw it out, I said, can you tell me what I should do with this? He says, yes. You need to throw this anchor at a place that will be in the middle of where we may want to be. Because it will, the boat will drift a certain amount of distance from the anchor. But if we throw the anchor in the right spot, it won't matter where we drift. Because we will always know the anchor will bring us back. So I threw the anchor back to this middle part. And he said, there it is. I began to pull and then the anchor got caught on the bottom And as it got caught on the bottom, I knew we were ready to fish. And for the rest of the day, we fished and fellowshiped and had a great, amazing day of fellowship as men with a cut thumb, amen, and a book that was lost and a sunburnt head. But as we dialogued and as we got done, I thought to myself, Jack, what is your anchor? I thought to myself, you know, We so many times in life focus on our hat and our style of lure and our fishing maybe acumen. But the reality is that the whole fishing trip was not going to be a success had we not had an anchor. Because we had to put ourselves in a position where we would be 
drifting only a certain amount before the anchor pulled us back. Friends, we now live in a society that many times from Monday to Saturday does not have an anchor. We live in a drifting society where popular culture or things from the outside make the, de- the decision on what we should do. And the outside determines the inside instead of the way that God designed it where the inside determines the outside. We live in a drifting society that, in my opinion, can be anchorless. And I don't know where you came from today. I, I, I don't know many of you, but I know this. That everyone in here today, in the sound of my voice and hearing this over any medium, desperately needs an anchor. You desperately need an anchor. So today, if it's okay, I just want to read one scripture passage to you from the book of Hebrews. And I want to challenge you with one question. What's your anchor? What's your anchor today? What's your anchor and how is your anchor holding up? If you've got your Bibles, and I believe we're going to put it up here, I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, at the end of the chapter. And we're going to read just a few verses here. And I will give you the background to the book of Hebrews after we read this. The book of Hebrews, God writes in chapter 6, starting at verse 17, and we'll read through verse 20. But let me read from the heart of God in the book of Hebrews. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this, listen church, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let me read again verse 19. No matter where you've been this week, listen to verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. God bless the reading of His Word. The book of Hebrews is very uh, intentional. Um, It's been called several things, an epistle, uh, a letter. To me, the book of Hebrews is almost like a sermon. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a well put together argument. It's almost like a lawyer is bringing his argument to bay to a group of people who desperately need the truth of this argument that he is making. And what is he saying? Well, we find in the book of Hebrews a very interesting generation. A couple of generations removed, maybe one and a half removed or so from Jesus himself. Now... The walk with Jesus has begun to cost people. It has begun to have a high cost. There is an emperor named Nero who is uh, crucifying and doing terrible things to the lives of those who uh, say and uh, side and quote and 
play around the culture like they are ones and followers of Jesus. He would put them, uh, put stakes all the way through them and light them on fire. He would cut them in half and use them as examples of his power. And so the people who had loved Jesus and their children now had a choice to make. Being a Christian was getting hard. It was going to be a challenge. It was going to be something that could even cost them their life. And so this excitement that had come with Jesus had now left town. And although they knew the principles of God and that they knew that this was right, they had a choice to make in their hearts and their minds and in their actions. Do we leave this Jesus character, this figure of Jesus, and go back into Judaism in which our fathers and grandfathers taught us? Or do we stick this out and know that it could cost us our very lives? And they were in a predicament, if you will, a, a, a split situation. What do we do? And I find that the, the predicament of the Hebrews is very similar to the predicament of America in 2017. You see, there are really two sets of circumstances that most bother or most keep us from walking with Jesus in an intimate way. The first one is, that is going to be too hard. It's hard to understand the Bible. It's hard to walk with Jesus. It's hard to live this thing out when people will make fun of you and ask you why you do things a certain way, why you act that way, why you raise your children that way, why you communicate that way, why you listen to that music, why you act a certain way. And many of us understand and can appreciate the Hebrews from the fact that it is really hard. Amen? And then the second thing that the Hebrews were kind of battling was, well, maybe if we just accept Jesus, but we add some other things. Like, we, we'll, we'll keep this Jesus because we believe and we know that just a few generations ago, our own family saw Him die on the cross, and we would be foolish to completely get rid of it. So here's what we'll do. We'll do Jesus plus some good works. And we'll do Jesus plus some heritage. We'll do Jesus plus some, and then the fill in the blank. And I find our culture is in a very similar place. Either we say, man, that's going to be hard. Wow, that's going to be tough to live for Jesus and to, to be sold out for the gospel is going to be hard and it could have a cost. Or else we say, I'll do the Jesus thing, but I want to add some other stuff. So I want to ask you something very simple today. What is your anchor? So, the argument of Hebrews is this. The author of Hebrews begins to say, okay, here's, here's what you're dealing with. You think it's hard, and you also are debating, should you add anything to Jesus? So, I'm going to answer you with an argument. And he begins by saying, you can try that, but here's the point you need to consider. Number one, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than your past, than anything you may have gone through. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than angels. And so the author of Hebrews begins to build an argument that I know it's hard for you, but let me just show you that Jesus is greater than your circumstance that you may be going through, and He's greater than the hero you're looking up to get out of your circumstance. 
So he starts by saying Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And he builds some momentum, if you will, through the first several chapters by comparing Jesus to the heroes of the Old Testament. And then he gets to a point where you can almost see his audience saying, okay, we got it. We get this. We got it. We got the fact that you think Jesus is greater. And then he's going to say, okay, in addition to the fact that Jesus is greater, I want you to understand, okay, the power that Jesus is not just greater than your circumstance, okay, I don't want you to give up. And so he's going to begin to say things that will spur you on from not giving up. And he will say things like run the race. He will say things like continue to do the things that you keep on doing. That you should continue to push through when it's hard. I got you. So Jesus is greater. Don't let up. 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 And so this message of the Hebrews begins to resonate with the people who were thinking about is Jesus enough and can I keep going? They read this and it soaks into their hearts, if you will, to keep them firm in a tough place where they know the generation, one generation from now, Christianity could be literally expelled from the earth. So the pressure is real, the challenge is real, just like it is in 2016, 17. The power is is awesome, but the challenge is real, just like it is in 2017. So I'm asking myself the question I asked myself that day when I went on that fishing trip as I prepare for this message. And I want to just give you my quiet time. I want to just give you what God showed me out of His Word from God's Word to your heart. And hopefully this will sink in and it will become for you a challenge about what your anchor is. You see, the two main responses that I have given God over the course of my life about anchorhood or what my anchor is, is two simple things that most of us in here have probably resorted to when we are looking for an anchor. Number one is your accomplishments. You know, we look for an ability to stand firm when things are getting crazy and we say, well, I've done some stuff. I mean, I got a Ph.D., I mean, people know my name. I've accomplished some things. I've spent 20 years at this company. Or I'm an expert in my field. Or you've seen me get some things done. And so we look in our past and we look for our accomplishments. We look at the wall and the banners that hang up. We look at the challenges that we've overcome. And we put those, if you will, as stripes to try to gain confidence in the storm. We look for hope, if you will, in our accomplishments. But here's the problem. Your accomplishments do not have a soul. Your accomplishments do not have a soul. So you cannot lean on your accomplishments to fix the problem you have in a storm because your accomplishments do not have a soul. The second thing that we lean on a lot is our people in our life. Well, yeah, I got a great wife, which I do. I'm blessed to have a great wife. I got, man, you don't understand my people, man. We roll together. We're tight, man. These are my guys. Like, they would never leave me. I'm going to lean on them. And I know that they're going to help me see me through, which God definitely commands us because we are relationship beings to rely on those around us. There's no question about that. But here's the second problem to that initial response about the anchor for your soul. Those people have the same problem you have. 
their soul is in desperate need of an anchor too. So in leaning on their soul, you will hear things like this after 10 years. Man, I thought you were going to be there for me. After all we've been through, you're going to turn and walk out on me? I can't believe he said that. I can't believe she did this. Can you believe she wore that? And the comparisons of lateral, lateral things begin to tax the ability for us to have an accurate anchor in the soul of the ones around us. Your accomplishments cannot be your anchor because they don't have a soul for you to give. Your people around you cannot be the ultimate anchor. They can serve as an encouragement, but they can't be the ultimate anchor because they are also in need of a fixer-upper in their soul or an anchor in their soul. You are all in the dirty pit together. The family reunion of all of you together and hanging out is literally a group of people who are in the pit together. And you are looking at each other trying to get out of the pit. The soul fixer, or in this case, the soul anchor, has to come from somewhere other than the pit. So you mean to tell me that God is saying here in Scripture that we need someone who is completely brag about their works or completely fulfill all of the works without any fallenness. And we need someone who can get in the pot with us, who is flawless, and yet himself does not need a soul to be fixed. Yes, that's what the author of Hebrews is telling you. He's telling you there was such a man who went and lived 33 years perfectly so that he could earn the right to be your relationship and to be your anchor in a tough circumstance with a windy, windy sea so that you could put your boat next to his anchor. And although you may drift, he will never allow you to drift but so far. So what is a practical application of this? What, what, is, Jack, what are you saying to me? Okay, I got it. Hebrews, people were struggling, they're writing, and he says this is an anchor to your soul. Well, in order to do that, I think accurately, I need to tell you about this Hebrew imagery. I need you to understand what's going on in the book of Hebrews right here because the power of this, to me, is eternal. You see, most of the calendar, of the Hebrew calendar, would center around a holiday called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This Day of Atonement was the day where the priest would go behind the curtain. You see, the temple was built. Uh, we learn this in the book of Leviticus. If you're uh, reading through the Bible of the year, I always laugh. If you're reading through the Bible of the year, Leviticus is the one that you normally takes people down. Amen? I don't know if you've ever read it. <laughs> But you get through there and you're learning about how these seats are set up and where the Holy of Holy is and where this is and where that is. And it is hard to get through. But in the book of Leviticus, we learn about the sacrificial system that was set up in order to foreshadow who Jesus would be. The power of this system was set up like this. There would be a temple area and in front of that temple area, there would be a curtain. This curtain would represent the separation between the unholiness of the people and the holiness of God. This curtain would be called a temple, I mean a veil if you will. And in the temple, it would serve as a separation agency between the holiness of God that was behind the curtain and the unholiness of man that was out in front of the curtain. You see, 
man wouldn't dare go behind the curtain except for one time a year there was a priest and the priest would go behind the curtain and he would offer sacrifices up for the people of God. He would take an uh, altar of incense and he would create a cloud. And there would be a seat that was sit- seated behind this curtain. And this seat, they would create a huge cloud of incense around. And he would take the, the blood of a bull and he would sprinkle it seven times around. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And so seven days a week, seven times around Jericho. Here we go. So the point is, I don't know if you're listening, but the point is, this is throwing this huge uh, blood, if you will, on the mercy seat. So they throw the mercy seat blood and then they go and they have two goats. And these two goats, while the people are out there, one would be let go, hence the term scapegoat. Then the other one would be killed and they would offer it as a burnt offering outside. The priest would then change his clothes. He would come in and on the day of atonement, the day of struggle for the people because they had to realize how lost they were. They had to realize how much sin that they had had in their life. How much they had drifted, if you will. And so as they go forward with this, the priest comes out and he declares to the people, Hey, listen, your sins have been forgiven. And they would leave and it would be a somber time. And then as they were done with the Sabbath, they would then press through the rest of their life. But the Bible tells us that blood of goats and cattle, or the blood of bull and goats, can't take away sin. That that was a symbol of what God would do later in eternity through His Son, who would make an offering once and for all, that we would be free of the eternal damnation that we deserve, and the priest could come out and say, you're forgiven. Jesus is on the cross And in a priestly fashion, he says several things. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The last cry, he says, to tell us die. It is finished. And the Bible says that when this to tell us die was offered up, that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now listen to me now. Not from bottom to top. No, no, no. no. From top to bottom. Why is that important? Because it's almost like, listen to me church, the hand of God was ripping the curtain to say, I want you to have access to the holiness of holies. I want you to see, I want you to see back here. And then Jesus, of course, in priestly fashion, comes out in front and he says to the people, it's me. Put your hand right here. Put your hand right here. Put your hand right here in the side. Because I can promise you I was dead, but now I'm alive. Did you not believe me when I told you that it was true the Son of Man would have to be given over? And then He would be crucified with sinners? But on the third day He would rise? He says, I want to be your anchor. He says, I went back there and I went behind the curtain and I solved all of your insufficiencies. I solved all of your weaknesses. All of the quiet sins that you haven't told anyone about. All of the things that you wouldn't dare utter that you feel ashamed of. That the people of God would walk out ashamed of. And I walked out and I said, it is finished. 
And I want you to know this, my friends. Because the power of God is in the redemption that Jesus has earned the right to be your anchor. Now listen to this, it gets even better. So these Jewish believers, the book of Hebrews, are struggling. Okay, so Jesus has done all this. And and this is cool, I get it, but... We have this priestly order here. Like, this whole thing has been set up. Like, Aaron was chosen to be the first priest, and he was in the tribe of Levi. And all of the priests, all of the subsequent priests, have come from the tribe of Levi. Now we have this Jesus guy who's come from the tribe of Judah, which wasn't the tribe of Levi. Levi was the priest guys, the preacher guys. Judah was the kingly tribe. So we got a problem because... He wasn't here. Which one is he? Is he a priest or is he king? So the author of Hebrews goes, I'll solve that. I'm going to give you an analogy. I'm going to tell you about Melchizedek. Who, by the way, his name means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. Only referenced a few times in scripture. He is a priest from the order of Melchizedek. King of righteousness. The priests were the ones who was righteous... Levitical tribe and Judah were the ones who were king because they said the king David would come from the tribe of Judah and also Jesus would come from the tribe. So the priests were the ones who got it right. The Levitical priests and the Judah tribe were the ones who were the king or the king would come from. So I got a guy who went behind the curtain for you. And in going behind the curtain for you, guess what he is? He is both the great high priest and he is the king of kings. He is the great high priest and he is the king of kings. So I want you to know today, the author of Hebrews is saying, that you're not serving an insufficient priest. Melchizedek is very interesting. Melchizedek, uh, we don't learn a lot about Melchizedek. Other than the fact Abraham... Who was their hero, by the way? Paid an offering to Melchizedek. So wait a minute, you mean my hero? My hero? These Jewish guys are reading this scripture and they're going, My hero paid an offering to this guy? Man, there must be something greater than Abraham. Holy moly, what's greater? What's his name? King of righteousness. What did he do? We don't know. All we know is that he was the king of righteousness relative to this sacrificial offering because in the Jewish economy, the person who gave the tithe was inferior to the person who received the tithe. So what here is what the author of Hebrews is saying. I know you have other anchors available to you. And I know you are trusting in Moses and Abraham and angels and for you out here. I know that you have other anchors available to you. I know you are trusting in economies and bank accounts and friends to get you through. I know those things are pressing in as alternate anchors for you. But I want to tell you about an anchor that's sufficient to all of those. That is all sufficient to all of those. That is superior, let's just say, to all of those. His name is Jesus. And so he introduces this argument. He says he is the sure and solid anchor to your soul. I want to read one part of it and then I want us to wrap up with our thought of what our anchor is. In uh, verse 20 at the end of this passage in Hebrews it says, where Jesus has gone, he's talking about the Holy of Holies here. He says, as a forerunner, as a forerunner, 
I want you to hear me, church. You know that when Jesus left earth 40 days, he's here after he's risen, when he left earth, you know he, he's now in heaven. And even as early as Acts chapter 9, we learn when he stands up, when Stephen is stoned, that he is seated on the right hand of God. You know what Jesus said to his disciples? I go and I prepare a place for you. I serve as a forerunner for you. I was before you were in the beginning of time before man was ever created. Now I go and sit on the right hand of God before you come. So I serve as a forerunner for you. I am a path paver for mankind. And so the power of believing in God as your anchor is that you don't believe in an anchor that can be shifted. You believe in an anchor that is ahead of you. Because the reality is we all drift. Now that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day, amen? But we all drift. And if we take an inventory of why we drift, my challenge to you, church, and my challenge to myself in my quiet time is, what is your anchor when you drift? You see, we give drifting wind, waves, distractions. We give it way too much credit. Because the power of the anchor, listen to me, is not that it's seen. Watch me. The power of the anchor is not that it's seen because the anchor actually does the most work at the bottom. Down in your heart, confessions you need to make. People you need to go ask for forgiveness. Things you need to do. The anchor does the work in the unseen. You see, we serve a God of the unseen. He came out. Behind the Holy of Holies and says it is finished so he could be seen. But now he is working in your life in ways that are many times unseen. What is your anchor? What is your anchor? What, what do you say when you got to have it? When everything's going wrong in your life and you got to have something to get you up to go to work. What, what do you say to yourself when you absolutely have to have it? What is your I got to have it moment. I got to have it. I can trust this PhD. That paper doesn't help you. I got to have it. I can trust somebody. What? But I can't get them on the phone. They're not answering. There's only one sufficient anchor in all of the storms of life. His name is Jesus. The argument of the apostle. The argument of the letter. Listen to me. The argument of the letter. Is that of all the anchors that you can seek after or that you can throw out, there's only one that won't be moved. And there's only one who's earned the right to be your anchor. I do this when I close everywhere I go. I share a poem that I was given a few years ago. I wrote this poem when I was overseas with a basketball tournament. And it's simply called The Greatest Champion. And I want to ask you to listen to me with your head and your heart because I believe people miss greatness by 16 inches. They hear it here, but they don't hear it here. So I want you to listen to this poem and I'm going to ask you one question and then we'll pray and wrap up. The author of Hebrews here giving us a very specific challenge. A very specific challenge. Do you have an anchor in your life? Do you have an anchor that gets you up in the morning? Do you have an anchor that's there for you? Not just what somebody said or the presence of someone. Do you have an anchor? And he's saying Jesus has earned the right to be that anchor. I want you to listen to this poem and then we'll close. 
poem goes like this. The debate remains aloud to find from the crowd the greatest champion of all time. So let them line up, all holding their cups, determined by their nickels and their dimes. You see, quickly we will see a glorified tree of athletes, politicians, and heroes. Many of them promote self and bank account wealth. It's a competition that revolves around zeros. But I dare to say the greatest champion of today is one who's been forgotten by most. He's valued to a few who sit in the pew. He was announced by the heavenly host. He was born in a stable to show that he's able to serve and lead at all costs. He seeks and he feeds the deepest of needs of anyone today who confesses, I am lost. He fed and he healed in Gethsemane. Listen to me. He kneeled to earn his ultimate crown. Accused by a crowd. Blasphemy! Out loud. To a cross they thought his kingdom would come down. For six hours he hung. No national anthem was sung. No ESPN coverage was given to his game. Alone he competed until your sin he defeated. The king of Jews was what they called him by name. So the champion was graved by one he had saved. Never to be heard from again. But after three days... After three days, the stone was away. And the locker room, it was emptied with sin. The greatest champion, he rose and he preached love that flows to his disciples and any of us who will listen. He preached no banner or ring or perishable thing. He preached about home with streets that are going to glisten. The greatest champion, he's Jesus Christ, who paid full in price for all that call on his name. And the way that he walked, the way that he talked, he mastered this life and all of its silly games. So let's hear a cheer. The greatest champion, he's in here. He said he would never forsake. Friends, he has every reason. Friends, he named every season. He's the greatest champion. Let us make no mistake. You know what the pastors... You know what the pastors... You know what the pastors across the country, like your pastor, are really trying to do? You know what they're trying to do? They're not trying to get your money or trying to get your support or trying to get all that. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to give you an anchor. They're trying to say to you, if you will believe in the forerunner, in the one that came before us, in the one that went behind the curtain and says, I'm coming back here for Jack's mess and I'm going to get this right. I'm going to come out and tell Jack, it is finished, now live like it. And the preachers like your pastor and the people around this area that I've met that have been so amazingly dedicated to the gospel want one thing for you. What's your anchor? Your boat may have drifted. Man, Lord knows mine does too. But if your anchor is right, if your anchor is right, you will be able to stand the test of time. I'm going to read this scripture and then we'll pray. So when God desired to show more convincingly, more convincingly than when he asked Abraham to go kill his son? Yep. That was an image. That was an image. Listen to me, church. That was an image. That was a preview to the movie. That was a preview. You want me to kill my son? Yeah, I'm asking you to go on a mountain. And then I'll rename that mountain Calvary and I'll put my son on it. That's a whole other sermon. Let me get back. Let me finish. So when God 
desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. How many of you have anchors that change? Woo. Let, me, let, me, let, me, let me stay focused. The unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie. How many of our anchors lie to us? We who have fled for refuge. That's what the world is doing. We are. We have all fled for refuge. Just one refuge. I just want. I just. I just. I just want a place to rest. That's what Sunday morning's like, isn't it? All week long. And then you get in here. Because why? Because the anchor's here. That's why. We have this, verse 19, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Church, stop playing games with lightweight anchors and get an anchor that won't move. He has earned the right to be your anchor. We let him be your anchor today? Not just Sunday morning, Jesus. Not just helicopter when I need you, Jesus. Not just cut the lights on when I feel like it, Jesus. Will you let him be your anchor? Everything I got goes through him. Everything I have goes through him. All to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. Started with the fishing trip. Father-in-law and I went out. And my goal was to show him that I deserved to be on his fishing trip. And what I showed is just like I show every other time I try to act like I belong. I have a father who sent a son to fix my fishing trip. My 80 to 100 year, however long I get here, my 80 to 100 year fishing trip is filled with bloody fingers and boats that are rocky and fishing poles thrown in the water. And the power of God, as he says, I'll come fix your fishing trip and I'll bring you home where the forerunner is seated and you can see all the other people who I fixed their fishing trip to. And you can thank me for all of eternity for a bunch of fishing trips gone bad that I made go right. Let me pray for us. Father, it is your will that we have a sure and steadfast anchor. An anchor of the soul that keeps us firm when the storms of life push through. And Father, I don't know who in here is in a storm, but my guess would be everybody. And my passion in leaving here is not that we would have promises of the storm going away, because that, God, would not be the truth. 
but that we would have the promise that Jesus gives to Peter. It is I. I'll lift you when your boat sinks. I'll lift you when your business fails. I'll lift you when your family needs me. I'll lift you. I'll hold you. I'll be your anchor. Because, Lord, the storms of life are raging. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Father, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Give us an anchor. And may that anchor only be you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.